it was a couple of years ago that I, I preached a sermon here and, and talked about how um, we kind of get it twisted sometimes, people like me, especially people in ministry, when we start to think that uh, God's given me a, a, a gift. I, I think I'm like, I'm in the top 50% of preachers, maybe. I'm like average. Okay. And, and so, you know, I can, I can kind of think, well, hey, God's given me this ability to speak and to, to share my testimony and, and to, to divide the word of truth, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, to share with people. And in doing that, I can sometimes think, man, God's given me this gift, this ability, so what am I going to do for him? Well, surely I'm going to turn around and do ministry. Ministry is my gift back to God. But what blew my mind was when I was reading Ephesians and Paul talks about how his ministry was also God's gift to him. See, what we do with our gifts is not our gift back to God. What we do with our gifts is an extension of his gift to us because it is a gift to be in service with the King of Kings. It is a gift to be able to, to speak into someone's life it's, it's, a, it's a gift to be able to, to sit down when someone is hurting and broken and just be there. It's a, it's a gift to raise your parents. Wow. Ruin the moment. It's a gift to raise your kids well. It's, it's, it's a gift when we're struggling, when we are hurting, to be able to continue to be that light in a hurting and broken world. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning what it means to be a light, and what it means to follow Christ, who is the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords. And, and I'm, I get to do kind of a soft opening of, of our uh, series this year, and I, I'm really excited to get to do that. And, and, and this year, we're talking about the names of God. And, and here's the thing. I thought there were like 27. There's over 900 of them. Which it blew my mind. Pastor Scott and I were talking about it, and he was like sharing some of them with me. And I'm like, how have I never heard these before? But it's really cool. We got a great year of ministry ahead. I'm so excited uh, to be a part of it with all of you. But this morning, uh, if you want, you can turn to uh, uh, the, the first letter that Peter wrote, chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to get to it in a minute, but you can get there now and mark the place. I want to want to take you back in time. I don't know if any of you ever watched Golden Girls. I watched it a lot. It was one of my mom's favorite shows. It was on all the time. And uh, the one thing I'll never forget is Sophia. Picture it. Sicily. And then whatever year, like 1919 or something crazy, you know. And uh, so I want you guys to picture it. Nebraska, 1999. <laughs> so long ago. But uh, it was my birthday. It was April 8th, 1999. It was one of, uh, I was not born that year. It was a birthday party. And um, at, that, uh, at that birthday, I received one of the coolest gifts I have ever been given. It was a watch. I love watches, by the way. It was a watch, and I loved it. Uh, it was, I wrote down the model number because I'm sure all of you are going to recognize it. It was a Casio CA53W1CR. I know, someone is like, wow, that's so cool. No, it was Casio's first calculator watch. It, had the, it was about this big, it had a big rectangle face, and the whole bottom half was just a calculator. 
and it could, it could, uh, it was a timer. You could do a stopwatch. It had a digital interface. There was a button you could click to make a light come on so you could see it in the dark. It was cool. I mean, now, like, we have, I think I've got my, yeah, I've got my phone on me. Now we've got, like, really just bright screens easily, and you can read it whenever. You can even read it in the sun. Nowadays, you need, like, a light to be able to read in the sun sometimes, but... <laughs> When I, was, when I was a kid and I got that gift in 1999, I was like, this is so cool. And little did I know, 12 years later, how important that gift would be. And so I'm going to leave you hangering, uh, hang, hanging there. You're going to teeter on the edge of, of how did a watch that was originally made in the 80s and given to me in 1999 come into play in a vital way in 2011 so that apparently 12 years later, I could preach a sermon and talk to you about Casio's, just, uh, one moment, the uh, 53W1CR. It's profound, trust me. <laughs> but we are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read down through 22. We're going to read through all of them, and then we're going to walk through, and we got some, some points we're going to talk about. Uh, so starting in verse 13, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, do not be in dread, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect and keep a good conscience. So in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right that rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, uh, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that we're in your house. And Lord, that we have made our bodies your house. That you have come to indwell us with your spirit, with your son, through your omnipresence. Lord, we know that you are here. We don't need to invite you. We don't need to welcome you. We don't need to open the door and, and let you in. But you're here. You were here before anyone got here. You'll be here long after we all leave. And so, Lord, as we take the next few minutes to dive into your word, help us to recognize your presence. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the text this morning. We love you, Lord. We give the next few minutes to you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Point number one. He is the Lord of our suffering and our righteousness. 
those first two verses that I read, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be in dread. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, suffered before, suffered a little bit. I've some at my own doing, some at the doing of, of others, but probably more at my own doing than anyone else's, if I'm being honest. I've made some dumb decisions. Anyone else want to admit to having made dumb decisions? Thank you. It makes me feel much better. <laughs> Appreciate it. We're all in this together, right? Man, there's, there's like so many examples. You know, when, when, you, when you're getting a sermon ready and you got to come up with some illustrations and then you get to a point like, I've done stupid stuff and just like the list just goes and you're like, oh man, which one do I share? And uh, I was so paralyzed by decision that I decided not to share uh, um, an example of stupid decisions that I've made. So we're just going to move on. No, that, see, that would be a stupid decision, right? Because, because now you guys think that I'm perfect, and I've given you no evidence to the contrary, and so it's clear uh, that next to Christ, I'm probably the, like, no, no? Okay, fair. <laughs> Someone was just, it was like a visceral reaction, like, you, <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, I've, I've, made some, I've made some bad decisions. I, I uh, when I was in college, uh, before I met my wife, uh, there was a, a, a girl that I was romantically interested in uh, to the uh, detriment of my own physical and mental well-being. I pursued her for like forever. It was like, I mean, it was a year, but it felt like forever. Yeah, how many of you know that when you suffer, it feels like forever, right? Like time flies when you're having fun, but it almost grinds to a halt when you're in pain. And, and, and I was so enamored with this person who's a good person uh but man she was like she like she liked me but then she didn't like me and then she liked me and she didn't and and I didn't see that as a red flag I just saw that as I'll just be patient it's okay like like she likes me sometimes so you know I'll just endure the times that, that she doesn't and but it ended up just it just it was it was rough it was a really really rough period in my life and I just I never in, at least for the first year, I never really got like it into my head. Hey, man, just like maybe this isn't God's plan for you. Maybe you should walk away. And and ultimately, she was the one who, who walked away for for good. And and I'm I'm grateful. And now I'm married to the amazing person that sang our offertory song. And also, she's married somewhere out west. And so we both have our happily ever afters because one of us got their act together, and walked away. Sometimes the right answer is to walk away from things. And sometimes, when, like in my situation, I was in a, a, an unhealthy uh, relationship, and it would have been right to end it. And I clung to it. I clung to the thing that was causing me suffering because I wanted to make it work. But it wasn't what God wanted for me. And that's the kicker, because if it's what God wants for you, we can endure that suffering because he's the Lord of our suffering. But here's the thing, God wasn't helping me endure that because it wasn't what he had for me. He was helping me endure it, but I feel like maybe a little begrudgingly. Every morning he had to give me a little bit extra grace. Be like, John, not tomorrow though, 
But he always showed up. He always gave me the grace I needed. He always took care of me. But I suffered a little bit extra, in my opinion, needlessly, because I wasn't listening to what God was saying. So that's just, that's one, one example, maybe a little bit more of a, a serious example of doing stupid stuff. Uh, when I was a kid, my brothers and I used to see how many atomic warheads we could fit in our mouth. I got like 11 once. That was very painful. If you haven't ever had one, they're extremely sour. And uh, yeah, so that was a bad example of uh, something dumb that I've done. So there you go. You have a serious one and a silly one. You can decide which one you want to remember when you get home after you eat lunch and take your nap. (laughs) Point number two. What else is he? This one's a little bit brighter here. It's from verses 15 and 16. He is the Lord of our heart and our hope. Our heart and our hope. So we're going to read that verse again. Uh, And who is, uh, sorry, that's the first one. Uh, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage you uh, and your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And account for the hope that you have. And account for the hope that you have. What is our hope in? Is it in Jesus? You sure it's not a politician? Sure it's not in how well the cowboys do this year? Sometimes that's where my hope is, and it's, it's always a disappointment. I'm a Cowboys fan. Huskers fans, if you're out there, you understand my pain. Browns fans as well. <laughs> the Eagles, nice. No, but our hope is in Christ, right? But, but here, here's the thing, and this was um, one of the things that I had to learn in my life, that not only is my hope in, in Christ, but uh, two years ago, my first sermon here, I said probably the most scandalous thing I've ever said in a sermon, and I didn't even get an email afterwards. You guys just trusted me, and I'm really grateful for that because I was telling the truth, and I'm going to say it again, and that is that Christ didn't come to die for your sins. Well, mm, he didn't come to forgive your sins. How about that? That wasn't the purpose. Is that what he did? Yes. Did he forgive your sins? Yes. Did he die for you? Yes. But why? The why was not the death. He didn't come to die. You can read scripture. It's very clear in John chapter 1. He came to testify to the truth. He came to restore our relationship with his father. He came to indwell us, to make us his home. In order for him to indwell us, he had to forgive us first. And so our hope is Christ in you the hope of glory. That is the eternal hope. The hope that we have is the indwelling Christ, not the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins happened, but it was a means to an end. So my hope doesn't lean on forgiveness. My hope leans on the sufficiency of the indwelling Christ. My hope leans on him. He is with me. Not I mess up and he forgives me, but man, he bore everything just so that he could fix our relationship. And that brings me way more hope than forgiveness alone. Way more hope than redemption alone. It is the the person of Christ himself, his presence in my life that gives me hope. And I hope that that is what gives you hope as well. Point number three, we're burning through them. This is from 
verses 17 and 18. He is the Lord of our sin and death. Yeah, I don't like that one, but it's good. Verses uh, 17 and 18. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Remember that story I shared that was suffering doing the wrong thing, but there is suffering that is good. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Told you before, my favorite verse in the Bible, Galatians 2.20. Paul, formerly Saul, persecuted Christians, persecuted the church, hated the church, bragged about how good he was at persecuting God's church. Then Acts chapter 9 comes along, he's on the road to Damascus, God blinds him for three days, diverts him, doesn't get where he's actually supposed to go for two years as God does a massive work in Paul's life. And the same Paul who was present and apparently the coat carrier when Stephen was being killed, martyred, that same Paul writes Galatians 2.20, for I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In this life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith, in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. The same guy who witnessed an apostle get martyred and was cool with it. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a rabbi. He, he, was, he, was, he was like the, the best Jew ever. He was there when Stephen was martyred, didn't bat an eye, because that's what he thought should happen. And then he can write that. I no longer live, but it is Christ in me. I was crucified with him. So what Peter is talking about here is the same idea. Christ died on the cross, but he came back. We died with him, but we came back. That's why we have to be born again, because we have died. And once you die, the only way that you come back is if you're born again, unless, unless you're Jesus. Then he can do whatever he wants. But we're born again. To me, that is uh, such a, uh, an interesting and an odd thing to think about that Christ came so that we could have this, this perfected relationship with God, but then I think back to the Garden of Eden, and that's kind of how it was supposed to be all along, that, that God walked shoulder to shoulder with Adam and Eve, and he desperately wants that relationship back with us, and that's why he sent his son, was like, I, I, need, to, I need to get back with these people. They're my people. I made them. I love them. They're everything to me. Do you understand that this morning? That you are everything to God? He created all this stuff in Genesis 1, and he called it good. And then he made you, and he said it was very good. You're everything to him. If you're a parent, you understand you have to be everything to him, because otherwise, how could he send his son to die? If you have a child... The only way that you could send that child to die for someone is if you love that person so much, they are everything to you. And yeah, he knew that his son was going to come back, but it doesn't lessen the pain. How do I know that? Because the, the people who lost Lazarus, they were weeping. Jesus wept with them, even though Jesus was about to bring him back. He knew he was going to be back in like a little bit. Give me five minutes. 
but he took the time and he wept. And there's a lot that we can unpack there, but we don't have time. We're going to move on. But I just want you to hear that this morning. This is that moment. If this is the only thing you take away from this sermon, I want you to take away that you are everything to God. Point number four. This is from verses 19 and 20, and this one has got room for a lot of rabbit trails. I'm going to try and keep my brain in check and not go on too many of them. Point number four, he is the Lord of our eternity. Verses 19 and 20, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There's a lot of debate on what this verse means. There's a lot of questions. Who are this, the spirits? Is he referring to the spirits of the dead? You know, like people who have died. Is he, what is he talking about? What is Peter saying? Who did, when Jesus died, who did he proclaim this to? Who were the spirits? I'm going to give you what I think is the correct answer. And I say I think because it comes down to interpretation, it comes down to study, and it comes down to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And God has not sat down with me in my study and said, John, it's this. So I'm not going to pretend that he did. And I'm going to tell you what I think is the right answer, and I would encourage you to study, ask, and seek the guidance of the Lord as well. I believe that these spirits that he's referring to, especially because what he says there in the days of Noah... If you go to Genesis 6, there are these demonic spirits that God has sort of shut away. And so I believe that this passage is talking about Jesus going down to the place of the dead, going to this prison where these demonic spirits are held, and levying judgment upon them, and saying, I have overcome death. You've been in prison for a while, but your, your time has come. You're, you're done. And he levied his judgment on those spirits. They weren't the spirits of people. They were demonic spirits, like those that left with Lucifer. But he is the Lord of our eternity. Because when, when, the, when the grave took Jesus, he didn't stay there. He was like, okay, cool. Now that I'm free from this, this fleshly vessel, I can go and do this work and so he went down to the place of the dead, and he eventually ascended up to heaven, and then he, then he comes back, and, and now he, he, he has all these, these, these things that he does that, that make it so clear to us that he is with us in every aspect of our lives, that, that he has proven to us that, that he is not just Lord of the cross, he's not just Lord of my salvation. He's not just Lord of my baptism or, or Lord of my forgiveness, but he is Lord of my eternity, that he has me, not just from cradle to grave, but long before I was born, he died for me. And long after I die, I'll live with him. And so he is God of my eternity. He's always there for me. Point number five, he is Lord of our salvation and resurrection. This verse and the next one are my two favorites here. Uh, so the first one is uh, uh, verse 21, again, chapter 3. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
got ahead of myself a little bit earlier when I reminded you of how Christ didn't come to die for your sins, but copy and paste that in your mind and, and put it here. Because what he's talking about, that removal of dirt from the flesh, he does mean like literally, hey, by the way, like baptism isn't about literally washing the skin on your body, right? That's called a bath, not a baptism, okay? Okay, but he's also speaking spiritually, and he's saying that it's not just the removal of your sins that saves you. It is Christ and his indwelling presence that saves you. He is always there. It is, it is not just that you get splashed in the water and you come back up or you get sprinkled or, or whatever it is that your denomination of choice does. That is not the vehicle of salvation. The vehicle of salvation parked and was over 2,000 years ago. How do I know that? Because at the end, right before Jesus gave up his spirit, what did he say? Three words. Yell it out. It is finished. It is finished. Not, it's finished with a little, like, footnote, as long as you get baptized later. It's not, it is finished as long as you live a really good life. It's not, it is finished as long as you still adhere to the law of the Old Testament. It's, it is finished done. When you look at the word finished in the Greek that he was speaking, do you know what it means? Finished. Done. <laughs> it's over. It happened in one point in time over two, yeah, over, well, it's like roughly 2,000 years ago. He did it. He's not still on the cross. He's not still doing it. He's not still dying for your sins. He has died. It's over. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is say, thank you, God. Take over. Because here's the thing. He's already in control. He's already Lord of all. All you have to do is accept that as reality, and you're saved. That's it. It's the easiest thing to accept that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of your suffering, Lord of your sin, Lord of your death but he's Lord of your righteousness. He's Lord of your salvation. It means that you can give him the deepest, darkest, most painful, horrible parts of yourself, and he will give you in return what? The best, the brightest, the happiest, the most joyful parts of life. We can give him the worst, and he only ever gives us back his best. Does it mean that life is easy? No. I still suffer. I still make mistakes. Does it mean that I'm going to be rich and have three BMWs and a private jet? No. Personally, I'm not interested in BMW. If you have one, great. Happy for you. But no. Most of the people in here don't drive a BMW, and guess what? God is still good. He is still Lord. I, I don't. I have, a, I have a car with like a hundred and some thousand miles on it. I don't know. I don't look that closely because it doesn't matter to me. It gets me where I need to go. I got a calculator watch in 1999 and I loved it. And guess what? If I got one today, I would still love it. I don't need a Rolex. Matter of fact, I don't want a Rolex. <laughs> They're really bulky. I just feel like my arm's like doing that, you know? I don't even want to hold it. Like, that's like, it's like my annual salary. I don't even know what they go for. But like, geez, like it's stressful to have stuff like that. But what I'm trying to say is what I don't want you to hear is that God is just going to cause you to prosper in material wealth. 
because that is the opposite of what I believe. God, I love, it was uh, Charlie Myers, I'm uh, putting him on the spot. He said this once, uh, I think he was quoting someone, I'm not sure, but I love how he refers to it. I always say God isn't a vending machine, uh, but Charlie, we were in Bible study, and, and he, uh, he, he used the terminology uh, that God is not our cosmic butler, that he doesn't just wait on our every whim and fancy, that we don't just go, uh, Garcon, and wait for him to come over and tell him what we want, and he just gives it to us. And he gives us what is good and perfect, like David shared with us at the start of our service. What is good and what is perfect. Love that. So he is the the Lord of our salvation and resurrection. And then you get to point number six. He is the Lord of all. Could have started with that point and only done that point, but I wanted to break it down because sometimes we hear he's Lord of all and we forget that that means he's Lord of the gunk too. So, Verse 22, who is at the right hand of God again, Jesus Christ, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. At the top of your notes, I'm just going to set this down real quick because I'm done with it. At the top of your notes, there's a stanza from one of my favorite hymns, and uh, it's... um, all hail the power of Jesus. Uh, oh, we have it up there. I didn't even know we were going to have a slide. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, a crown, and crown him Lord of all. I love that hymn. If, if I had been pastoring here when, like earlier in the year when we were doing hymns back in 2020, I would have done this one for sure. It's one of my favorites because it reminds me what the, the angels themselves, when Jesus walks in the room, they're prostrate on the ground. They're prone. They can't even bear to be in his presence. And they bring this crown to him and they, they put it on him. Why? Because he's Lord of, of everything. He is the, the vessel through which God created everything around us. We learn that in John chapter one, that Christ is the vessel of creation. He is Lord of everything. And I want you to to hear that this morning. As we start the new year, January 1st, 2023, as we start the new year, there's there's two stories I want to use to illustrate this. Some of you might have heard the famous phrase of there was a, eventually a, a song by a, a, a band called for king and country called burn the ships and if you've been in church for an extended period of time you might have even have heard this story it's a favorite among pastors because it's such an amazing illustration and it has the added benefit of being a true story and so i love to share it so if you have heard it don't tune out because it takes like 30 seconds to tell uh, but it's such a powerful story. And in 1519, Hernan Cortez settled the New World. And by settled, I mean he settled his ships on the shores of, and 600 men with him came onto the shores in the New World. And what did he do? He told his men, turn around, burn the ships. There's no going back. This is home. We got to make this work. And you know what's crazy? 600 men. Two years later, they were complete 
in their conquering of the Aztec Empire. Two years, 600 men, and an empire falls. Why? Because there was no going back. No one had in their mind, well, if this gets too hard, I can get on the ship. Well, if, if this just doesn't seem to be working out, at least I can get home. At least I have a backup plan. And so that story has resonated with me since I first heard it when I was in college. And now I want to tell you a personal story. When I was in college, the church that I attended, Church 3434, it was not a Bible reference, it was our street address, and we really wanted people to know just how community we were. And so it was our address, that was our church name, Church 3434. Still exists, thriving church, the senior pastor was my mentor for a long time, Dr. Jeff Both, fantastic guy, I love him. That church had a, a, a missionary to Siberia. My wife has been to Siberia. I'm not sure where my wife is, but uh, she was, uh, oh, she's up there, right? She's on the camera. Hi. My wife went to Siberia for two weeks, okay, for work, um, and, and it was uh, a crazy time. It's really cold there, by the way. If you didn't know, it's a tundra, which is like a desert of snow. It's really cold, okay? So she was in Siberia for two weeks, but our church had a missionary that was in Siberia. It was a couple for two years. While they were there, uh, the, um, there was a, a, like a support group from the church that went over to visit them and see how they were doing and connect with them and give them some supplies and, and just, you know, uh, spend time with them. And, and this uh, couple that was there in Siberia, they were a younger couple. They were younger than me, which is really weird to think now. I'm so old. Hey, they laughed at me for being old like they laughed at you for being young. It's amazing. No. Um, and so they were, they were early 20s, um, which is, that's a heck of an age to go to Siberia for two years. And while they were there, the pastor's uh, mother um, was, uh, was talking with the wife of, of this, this missionary couple, and she was just kind of down the whole time. Her, her countenance was just low, and she just seemed really, uh, really unhappy. And she wasn't angry, she was just kind of down. And so she was having a conversation with the wife and trying to figure out, like, hey, what's going on, you know? And they, they went back to the bedroom, and they sat down, and they were just talking and having a, a chat. Um, and uh, the pastor's mom had, had looked over and saw in the closet a couple of suitcases. And there was just clothes kind of piled and mishmashed all around the suitcases. And uh, so the, the, she asked the missionary, are you going somewhere? And the missionary's like, well, I'm kind of hoping oh, sometime soon, maybe kind of going home. And the, the pastor's mom has this moment of revelation from the Lord, and she goes, did you unpack your bags? And she just responds, no, not, not yet. Two years. They had a house, and she had never unpacked her bags, living out of her suitcases for two years. And the, the mom responded with this wisdom. It's the same as burn the ships. You know what she said? You got to unpack your bags. Some of us, we get to a, a new phase of life. We get to a new job or a new season of, of family or, or something. And we kind of leave one foot back because we're uncomfortable just going for it. But what happens is if you have a backup plan, when things get hard, you take it. 
when Hannah and I got married, we vowed to never get divorced. We didn't want a backup plan. Because when things get hard, you take it. And when things get hard, what do we want to do? We want to, want to lean on God. We want to trust him because he is the Lord of everything. As we start this year, I want to remind you, don't leave anything in 2022. Don't leave anything last week. This might be a little too far, but don't leave anything in the good old days of Pine Castle. You're here today. God is doing things today. And he is going to do some incredible things in 2023. How do I know this? Because he does incredible things every year. And so I can trust him with that. Will you believe with me? That God has got some amazing things planned ahead of this church. That our best days are not behind us, but they're in front of us. Because God is good. I'll close with this. And actually, I will. I will close with this, I promise. The story that I left you at the beginning, teetering on the edge of your seat. How could this little crappy calculator watch, how could it have such a profound impact 12 years later that, ooh, then 12 years after that, I would get to preach about it. Look at God. Isn't he, isn't he cool? So 24 years ago, I get a watch. 12 years ago, it has this amazing uh, instance where I was at ORU. I was in the honors program. Don't let that impress you. I uh, don't know how I got in. I did not have the GPA for it, but uh, it was the favor of God, I guess. But um, uh, I got into the honors program. They did the honors retreat in February every single year. February of 2011, I go out into the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. Our retreats in the state park. And I've talked about this with some of you just in person before, and you've heard about how much I love astronomy and that the first night we were there was a Friday night. The skies were supposed to be perfectly clear. We go out into a clearing outside of the forest, and we lay down, and we look up at the stars, and at first I'm so disappointed because it's kind of cloudy. And I'm like, ah, oh, I wanted to see the stars. I love astronomy, not astrology, astronomy. I love what God has created out there. I love that stuff. And then it started to settle in. No, it is, in fact, actually a clear night. I'm just so far away from light pollution that I can see the cloudiness of the Milky Way itself. And that is, like, that is a top five moment. That and seeing the ocean for the first time in person, two of the most profound moments of my life, okay? The second night we were there was a completely overcast night. Remember how I said how far away we were from light pollution? What that means is you step outside, you can't see anything. And I mean nothing, like at all, because there's no light. There's nothing to reflect. There's no moon illuminating or stars out there. There's no city lights from 20 miles away. We were like 100 miles away from like the nearest town. It was like the, one of the few places in, in the U.S. you can do that aside from like the, the, the like Nevada desert or something. And... Uh, because of that, we were just kind of like hanging around, having a good time in the woods, and um, a few of the people that were there, they were freshmen, and they hadn't uh, really been in the country before. Like, they were pretty much like city slickers, and so, you know, going in the woods, especially at night, they were really nervous, they were really uncomfortable, and uh, by the time that we realized how late it was, those of us that had cell phones were mostly dead. And so the, the last little bits of light were dwindling until the point that we didn't have any more light and we still were not back to the campground. 
And the people that had not really spent much time in the country were very nervous. They were, by very nervous, I mean terrified. Because when you're in a forest at night in the middle of an area you've never been in, every sound is scary. You think everything out there is going to kill you, right? The, the reality is, like, 80% of that stuff is just as scared of you as you are of it. The other 20% is objectively terrifying. Don't mess with it. Um, <laughs> but they were scared. They were, they were full of anxiety. They were so worried. And we were also, like, not lost, but, like, kind of. But, but not, but kind of. We were trying to make our way back to the campground. We didn't have any lights. We didn't have anything else. Those of you who are thinking back, you know where this story is going. But I remember this moment where one of the, the, the ladies I was with is just a, a lovely friend to this day. She was so panicky, so nervous. And I remembered that I packed my trusty, I'm not wearing it today. I packed my trusty Casio. Was it 54C3W something? I don't know. And that thing has a light on it. And I was like, oh, oh, here to save the day. Click, and it lit up, little tiny light. And can I tell you that her blood pressure went down so much just by seeing the grass for like three seconds until the light turns off, and then you got to hit it again. So my job became like the illuminator. I was just like, and step over that. Oh, it's dark. Okay, hit it again. And that was my job for like the next 30 minutes until we got back to the camp. It was very slow going. But what I learned in that moment, when it's darkest, you don't need a lot of light to make a big difference. When it's pitch black outside, when, when you're at your lowest, when you're at your worst, when you are so in despair, the tiniest flicker of light is enough. If any of you watched Lord of the Rings, the movies, there's a scene where, I see that hand, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, there's this scene where, where the, there's, there's people that were trying to take a town that were overrun, and, and they're, they're coming back to safety. They're being chased by these evil flying winged beasts called Nazgul, and Gandalf, who is like an angel in this world, um, is riding out towards these people who are retreating who are being chased by these winged demons, basically. And Gandalf is riding out on a horse towards them. It's this beautiful scene of this massive field as these two groups are coming together. And what, is, what does Gandalf do? He lifts up this beautiful white staff that he has. And all that happens is a beam of light comes out of the staff. And it comes across the eyes of these winged Nazgul. And it's physically painful for them. And they let out this screech of pain, and they turn around and they retreat. He didn't fight. He didn't, he didn't pull out a crossbow or a gun or a bomb. He shined a light, and the darkness retreated. In the darkest moments, it doesn't take a lot. A little small light from a watch, from a flashlight, from a cell phone, in a hurting and broken world the small light inside of each of us. It doesn't take a lot. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. All you have to do is have Christ in you. And that is the light. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to have all the right things to say. But he is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, that means he's Lord of the hard moments too. 
And so when the darkness of this world comes, remember you have a light inside of you that the world desperately needs. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning uh, that you are good, that you are with us, that you are here in the midst of everything that we encounter, that you are Lord of all. And I pray for each of us. And as we go throughout the rest of our week, you would remind us of this word, Lord, that you are God, that you are in control. Help us not to leave anything in 2022. Help us not to leave anything in the past, but to strive ahead for the good things that you have, for the wonderful works that you've put before us to do. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who's going through a hard time, who's depressed, who's broken, who's facing uncertainty, whether it's uh, health or, or financial or relational or, or just despair, and maybe they don't even know why. Lord, I pray that you would surround them, not just with your presence, but with people full of your light to lift them up, to wrap them in their arms. Lord, help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to this community. Help us to be the light of the world here, reflecting you, not shining for ourselves, but revealing you to this world. We love you, Lord. And we trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of his great mercy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be all power and glory, glory, majesty and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.